1 Timothy chapter 3, as we have seen with Paul reminding Timothy to deal with the false teachers and false teachings, which you've looked at. And because I've had a three-week gap in there for my attendance, I know that it's been a little bit off, um, a little bit sporadic, remember some of this. But, you know, chapter 3 deals with the overseer and the deacons because they were partly responsible for some of the false teaching and needed to correct it. He, he comes to the end of, you know, Paul didn't write in chapters, but we come to the end of chapter 3. And uh, Paul says some pretty amazing things for the church. Having dealt with the leadership, he said, by the way, the word leadership is another way of saying the people who are supposed to serve the most, okay? You understand what leaders should always be servants. If, don't ever put someone in a position to lead if they don't take positions to serve. I try not to do that in, in, in things we have. Leadership should never be a position, Leadership is about influence. But sometimes in a Baptist church, in any church, you have to have certain positions. And we always look for people who serve. And uh, I'm always leery and weary of people who never serve, thinking they're leaders. Look behind you. If no one's following you, you ain't a leader. Verse 14 says, I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing all of this, Timothy, hoping to come to you before too long. Paul's intent is to come. You know, by the way, when Paul comes, he'll straighten some of the mess out. You know, I always love when Paul says, he says that in several places. I'm coming. When I come, and I'm paraphrasing into a South Texas way, when I come, we're going to set it all right. We're going to get that straightened out. But notice what he says, but in case I'm delayed, Timothy, if I don't get there soon. And then he, he makes a statement that has three parts. In case I'm delayed, I write so that, and that phrase so that translates a little, I told you this before, there's a little word in Greek. It's a really important word. It's called henna. Yeah, that's the Greek word. And it, it either has purpose or result, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. But it's always important. It's one of those words that this means something. I'm coming, or I'm writing with a purpose, Timothy. And here it is. That you will know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. I'm telling you all this so people know how to behave because they misbehave. They're not acting like followers of Jesus. And that's the reason, that's the whole problem. He's going to get into that, and we'll see in just a minute, chapter 4. They, they need to know how they should act if they're part of the household of God. The term household has the idea of all the people that would be a part of it. Um, family, servants, you know, you know, whatever. It's just the whole group. Um, I, normally when I think of, of, of a church, the word church means ecclesia. comes from the Greek word ecclesia. I think of community. I don't really think of family. And one reason I don't think of family much is because we live in a day and age where for some people the concept of family is very negative. I hear people say, our church is a big family, but if you come from an abusive background or a family that was extremely dysfunctional, calling yourself a family may or may not, it may be good because they may be looking for a family, but it may not be good. But what we really are, above all else, is we're a community. And communities have lots of different types of people a part of that community. 
And so that's really what the word church and in, in the word synagogue is the idea of the community. The word household carries similar. It's got some connotations of family, but it's also got connotations of people who are connected to you. And it could be, you know, if you were a wealthy man, it could be the people you hire. We might be considered part of your household servants that you may have. Um, people you interact with. It's just we're part of a group that belongs to God. That's, we belong to God. We're his. He said, this is the, the church of the living God, the word church, the ecclesia, of the God who is alive. I, mean, I know we, we always, you know, we know our God's living. <laughs> but, but think for a moment, in a world full of pagans, their gods were all dead in the sense that they didn't exist. Now, you know, the, you know, the pagans think their gods are alive, but, but there is only one God. He is the God who lives. And I think it's sometimes we take for granted, I think, and I do, that our God is real. He is the only named deity, concept of deity, however you want. He's the only God that exists, and he's the only one that is real. And out there is a whole world of people worshiping what is dead. By dead, I mean has no life. It's lifeless. And their religion's lifeless. And their philosophies are lifeless. And their faith is lifeless. And ours is living. He says, and because of this, that church then is the pillar and support of truth. So in the midst of false te teaching, Paul is saying in the church you find truth. The pillar, you know, you back down. Remember, there's temples all throughout Ephesus. According, and, of course, the, the temple to the goddess Artemis, uh, Diana, whichever, whether you're Roman or Greek, you know, in the book of Acts, there's a whole controversy about great as Artemis, you know, and all that stuff. The temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It had these massive columns. I think, I forget how many, 80 to 100 of these huge columns. Paul says, the church supports truth. Now, the church is both built on the truth and proclaims the truth. And our job is to preach and teach and believe what is true. So why we can't have what is false creep in. Now, you know, sometimes we'll disagree on things. And, oh, I got you. I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about you know, I, I'll use the example about the second coming of Christ. As long as you believe Christ is coming again, he's going to judge and everything's in. I don't, I'm not concerned about all your beliefs and millennial stuff and all that. Some people get a lot concerned about it, I, I honestly. Most people who talk to me are wrong about what they believe anyway, so I don't have time to correct them all, I guess. But I don't, I don't, I don't it doesn't, that doesn't bother me. But if you were to deny the second coming of Christ, oh, that would bother me. That would bother me a lot. And... Truth and that which is important is what matters. And I think we need to always strive. And, and, and I strive really hard to be precise and concise. I try not to give you long, convoluted explanations for things. 
<laughs> because most of the time long convoluted explanations are usually not really true. What I want to give you is the precise understanding. I say this all the time. Remember, the people who received the Bible, these books, most of them weren't very educated. They were just good old boys and good old gals and that loved Jesus and were striving. They didn't understand nuance. They couldn't parse all the fancy Greek words and come up with subtle differences based on a prefix or a suffix that somehow drastically changes your whole doctrinal position. They, they didn't live in that world. They lived in the world that if you said, you know, God so loved that he gave Jesus, they understood what that meant. They, they lived in a world when Paul says, you were, you were part of the household of the living God. Yeah, all right, I get that. And they lived in that world where it was simple. Sometimes, you know, we just need to be simple about what we believe. Beyond question, beyond any doubt, great is the mystery of godliness. And the word mystery is not what is hidden. See, we think of mysteries as what is hidden. The mystery, mysterion, is what is revealed. Great is that which you did not know which you now know. And he's going to remind them of what really matters here in verse 16. It was what was, and he says, uh, the God, and he gives, uh, uh, some of your versions may have it like a little poem or a song. It's six lines or stanzas. Some think it's a six-line poem. Some thinks it's a poem or a song with, with three parts or two parts with three lines. Some think it's one with three parts with two lines. Really what you have is you have three two-line compare and contrast statements. Here's the first. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit. In the flesh, in the spirit are different. And the flesh here isn't meant necessarily to be evil, but it's the flesh. And he was revealed to as Jesus in the flesh. We're coming up on Christmas. I'm, I'm doing, you know... This is my 43rd year as a minister for the Christmas, and the Christmas story doesn't change at all. I don't know if you know that or not. And I've preached preach a lot of Christmas messages. There's really only two places you get Christmas from. It doesn't change. <laughs> but I always pour back over it. And Jesus came in the flesh. That's, the, that's, that's what Christmas is, God coming in the flesh. <sighs> But he was vindicated in the spirit. In the flesh, they put him to death. But God raised him, and the understanding would be by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was vindicated. He was shown to be the one true God. You killed him. Peter would say, you crucified him. God raised him back to life. He was seen by angels, but proclaimed among the nations, the people groups. Now, people say, when was he seen by angels? Well, Heaven, probably go there. I guess in, in life he maybe was seen by the angels. I don't know. But not only was he known by the angels, but he was proclaimed among all the people groups. Nations is not political entities. They're ethnic entities. They're cultures. He was been proclaimed for the last 30 years among all these cultures. He was believed on or had faith on in the world. But he was taken up in glory. We believe in him in this life. 
He's gone up in glory. And being in glory, he will come again. And coming again is important. But the other thing is, he's in glory. And that's where our destination is. I was uh, reading this, and I was thinking, you know, uh, people ask all the time, and I appreciate you asking, you can ask, how am I doing? I'm doing good. No, I don't need food. I still don't need food. Never going to need food. Never have to ask me. I still get asked that question. Sometimes I feel sad. I always miss my wife. Sometimes I feel sorry for myself. And then I think, yeah, but she's with Jesus. And I'm pretty happy for her. So there's joy there. And one of the reasons I know she's with Jesus, besides him telling me that is, he was taken up in glory. Acts 1, they saw him go up. And the angel said, just like you saw him go up, he'll come back. The second coming of Christ not only encourages and comforts us, but the second coming of Christ, which includes his glorification, is a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. To deny the second coming, which means to deny his exaltation, is to deny Jesus. So we need to remember how important it is that we live this life with a view to the next because at some point, he will come. So then he goes to chapter 4. But, now, he has talked about those who are responsible for false teaching to some degree. And in chapter 1, he gave a warning a little bit about false teaching. And now he's going to come and give some of the evidence of what the false teachings are. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in the latter times. Now, it's always interesting in latter times. So what did Paul mean by latter times? What did they understand? They didn't think the term latter times or later days, they weren't thinking of 21st century America. You know, that man, I wonder what's going to happen in 21st century America if Jesus comes. They lived believing that the coming of Christ was imminent. And they lived in the last days. The last days are either from, depending on your viewpoint, it doesn't really matter, the first coming of Christ at Christmas or the exaltation of Christ till when he comes again. People say to me, do you think we're living? Preacher, I think we're living in the last days. And you're correct. We've been living in them for 2,000 years, according to the New Testament. Now, I don't know what according to what you read or what you believe. According to the New Testament, we live in the last days, the later times. What that means is this. We live today 
believing that Christ can always come. Now, I know some of you have, well, these things have to come. I have a list. I got only checked off two-thirds of the list. There's another third got to be checked off. That's good. I got you. The biblical teaching in the New Testament, which is all that matters, is that we live with the expectation, regardless of your checklist, that Christ can come at any moment. You need to live that way. I need to live that way. The Spirit tells us that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith. That is a disturbing sentence. In other words, since the time that Christ has left, there are those who appear to be followers of Jesus who fall away. So it brings the question, can someone lose their salvation? In the first of next year, uh, in January, I'm preaching some from the book of Hebrews. And I will deal with this again because Hebrews deals with that. I had a friend of mine who was a free will Baptist preacher. Free will Baptist preachers mean that you believe you can lose your salvation. And he was going on about that. You know, about what about this guy does this or that or this or that? <laughs> and I said, there's a difference between losing your salvation and never having it. You can't lose what you never had. When you grow up, especially in the South, grow up in Texas too, in what I call a cultural Christianity, everybody's a Christian. Everybody in my last channel lived in Bridgeport, Texas. Just about everybody been baptized. They all, every good old boy belonged to either First Baptist, First Methodist, or one of the churches that broke off us. They were all Christians. To fall away is not to lose something. It's to never have it, to cling to and hold to when you need it. And the false teachers were leading people away from the truth. And they were reason they were susceptible from falling away from the truth. It's because they weren't really holding to the truth in Christ. So they fell away from the faith, not saving faith, but from the faith of what it means to be Christian because they never had it. Now, let me tell you why. There's this thing Jesus said. And whenever Jesus says something, I tend to think he's the last and ultimate authority. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I, Jesus, and only I give to them eternal life, which by definition means life that never ends. And they shall by no means, that's a double negative, by the way, which is really good Greek, by no means perish or be destroyed. And no one can snatch them from my hand or take them away. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me, and no one can take them from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus, Jesus says, if I give you eternal life, you can't perish, fall away. 
So I'm going to always go with him. You can explain that away all you want. That's fine. But I've read it in English. I've read it in Greek. I read it in Portuguese. I read it in Czechoslovakian. And I read it in Mandarin. It all means the same thing. I didn't read that. Well, that preacher's smart. No. <laughs> you're not. But here's the thing. So here's what happens. The false teachers have fallen from the faith. They're not true believers. Instead, they're paying attention, notice, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits is not necessarily that some demonic thing taught them, but it's that which comes from the realm of the world in opposition. You know, and, and the idea of deceitful spirits, the idea of the teachings of demons does not necessarily mean that demons are teaching them, but it means what they teach comes from the opposition to God which always is in the realm of Satan. In other words, their false teaching is from hell. That's a good way to remember it. What they teach is deceitful. It is from the very depths of hell. And he goes on to talk about it. And it doesn't seem like this that big a deal, but think of what he says. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, that's a beautiful phrase, the hypocrisy of those who lie, seared in their own conscience with the branding iron. That term seared means cauterized. In other words, they have been cut off, not branded so much as cut off. Because when you cauterize, you, it, it, it ends something. They have been cut off from what is moral in their conscience. They have lied. Here's what they do. They forbid marriage and, ab and advocate abstaining from food which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. What they were teaching is this. And it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is. They were teaching that a superior form of Christianity, which encouraged people to abstain from marriage and not to eat meat, basically. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? Even Paul sometimes says, it's, you know, in Corinthians, it's good, you know, to remain single and all that. But other times, like here, Paul will say it's good to marry. You have to understand the context. But here's the thing. God said in Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They'll become one flesh. God has given marriage as the foundation of family life. To say that in order to be a follower of Christ, which is what they're saying, you had to abstain from marriage, is a teaching that is in opposition to the foundation of what God has established. And it's not about, listen... <laughs> Don't raise your hand. Any vegans out there, don't raise your hand. This isn't saying you can't be a vegan. Or for health reasons, you like vegetables. I am the anti-vegan. I even wrote a book about it. If you haven't bought it, we're out, but more is coming, so you can buy it when they come for $13.95. Two for 30. So remember that. So <laughs> but what they were saying is that it was wrong morally as a follower of Christ to eat what God has said was okay. Now, and so they, what they were doing is saying this, they were reverting to a type of asceticism that has its roots in a Jewish mindset that places a, a higher value on abstaining from things that are part of our life. You know, the need for marriage, the need for food are part of being human. God's given those gifts to us, not to be abused. 
They were denying the goodness of what God has provided and saying that is a part of the Christian faith. Now, that's just one thing they had done. But in doing so, they would substitute in their own teachings about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that, that is seen in other places um, in the book. We're not right here right yet. And he says that what God has given is gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. And, and here's the thing. When you preach or teach asceticism or saying it is essential for faith, no longer do I experience what God says is good and thank him for it. Now, you know, many times I thanked God for my family. It was a blessing to me. still is. I still thank him for it. When, you know, I know when we eat, you know, we bless the food. I know we kind of do it uh, casually sometimes. We bless, us, we bless our food unless you're eating with Joe. He just decides to eat without blessing food. We always have to, th God, thank you for what we are about to receive and what Joe has already eaten. <laughs> He's back there. <laughs> I know it. I thought you blessed it already. When did we bless it, Joe? There was no food here. But it's the idea of this. It is the idea of being grateful to God for what he has provided. Not just that I sit down in the meal and say, God is great, God is good, let us thank you for the food. It is to be genuinely grateful that a father has provided. And as an American, he has provided in abundance. And, is to, and it is to teach something that would be repulsive to a lost person. What lost person are you going to convince to come to Jesus? Don't get married, don't eat meat, but come to Jesus. He'll change your life. That's a stupid message. And you create then, they agree, it's good baby. They create all the monsters. You can stay, you don't have to leave. That one stayed and she cried. Phoenix cried louder than anybody. Layla's fine. Now I'm thinking about food also. I should, <laughs> hadn't had dinner yet. But I don't need any. I'm good. <laughs> don't offer. Pretty sure we got food for you in the car. No. It's to create an arrogance in the Christian faith. You can't do that. Paul says, it is sanctified by the means of God in prayer. I love the word sanctified. We don't use it much. It means to be made holy. Made holy means to be set apart. Not from something, but to something. Marriage, food, the things God provide, we sanctify it. We recognize God has given it to us. And notice what it's sanctified by. The word of God in prayer. Here's what it means. The word of God means this. God has already established in his word, back in the Old Testament times, but through the revelation of the New Testament, that it is good. And if God says something's good, who in the world are you to say it's not? And prayer doesn't mean just the blessing, but it means the fact that we receive it in prayer. It's been sanctified by the word of God. In our prayer, we thank and praise God.
in the, fa in the false teachers are creating this division within the church to set aside an arrogant, hypocritical view of the Christian faith that misses what matters most, which is not to be set apart from everyone else by the way you live your life, but to live your life praising God and thanking him for what he has given. And in honoring God, you're not going to honor him when you disagree with what God has blessed us with in whatever capacity. So here you have. At the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, and we're going to get in more to what he gives Timothy more instruction. We'll see this next week. Finish up chapter 4, I hope. Here you have Paul reminding the church of what they are to be and reminding them of a grateful, humble life and not the arrogant condescension of the false teachers. Well, that's all I have.